0: The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's word without apology in order to fulfill the great commission in the spirit of the great commandment. All right, turn now in your copy of God's word to Mark 6. Mark 6, we're plotting uh, our way through the gospel of Mark, aren't we? We've been plotting our way through laboring here to uh, answer Mark's question each and every week, who is this man? Mark has gone to great lengths uh, in these opening chapters of his book to uh, put before us, to show us the man, Jesus Christ, and to uh, bring us to a place where we are repeatedly asking, who is this guy? Who does this man think he is? And today we see that he is the rejected one. Rejection has paved the highway of following the Lord since the beginning. Abel was killed by Cain for his offering to the Lord. Noah was mocked as he built his boat. Sarai was dismissed by her husband Abram in fear only to be taken uh, as a wife by another man. And not just once, but twice he dismissed her. Joseph was cast out by his brothers. King David was pursued by Saul and one of his sons. And the prophets, they themselves, were ridiculed, were discredited, and often had to live under meager conditions for the message that God had given them. And so when Jesus, the God-man, enters into human history and begins his earthly ministry of unapologetic preaching and unstoppable power he and his followers are also rejected by those closest to them and also by those in power. Mark 6 tells the story uh, of this rejection for us. And here's really the the central theme. Here's, Here's the nail. Here's the main point that when we are deployed with Jesus, expect to be discredited, dismissed, or even done in. When deployed with Jesus, expect to be discredited, dismissed, or even done in. Let's pick up where we left off last week at the beginning of chapter 6, verse 1, and I want to read this first portion of our text for us now. Hear the reading of God's word. It says this, Mark 6, verse 1. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went out among the villages teaching. This is God's word for God's people See, we must, as uh, God's people here, uh, recognize the reality of rejection. Rejection has been the norm. It was experienced here by Jesus himself and should be uh, expected by us that rejection is the norm. See, don't miss the sequence of events here as Mark has organized them for us. It's very strategic. Jesus is back home. He's teaching in his home synagogue after a, a very profound ministry of teaching and miracles. Up to this point, we have seen a a tremendous amount of people coming to faith, of people being healed, of even someone, a, a little girl last week being raised from the dead. And now Jesus is going back home, going back to his home synagogue, the place where he grew up at. Anybody going home this summer? Anybody going back to their hometown on a vacation? Anybody? No? A few people? Yeah. Some are going back. We went back last summer uh, to, uh, to visit Wisconsin, back to my little old hometown, the town of Belmont, about 800 uh, folks, all dairy farmers. And, uh, you know, what's interesting about this passage is Jesus goes back home and visits the synagogue, and it's the last time for both. It's the last time that he'll return back to his hometown in his earthly life and actually not just uh, the synagogue there in Nazareth, but it'll be the last time, as Mark records it, that he enters into a synagogue as has been his norm to teach on the Sabbath day. When he gets to Jerusalem in some time and in several chapters, he'll go into the temple, but this is the last time he went home, the last time that he went to synagogue. Last summer, I had some similar thoughts as we went back to, to Belmont and, and uh, we went up particularly because my grandmother is, is very elderly and has dementia and they were moving from their home on the Mississippi River, a place where my whole life I would go to visit them and spend time on the Mississippi fishing, climbing in their trees and just spending the weekend with my grandparents. It was about an hour drive from my hometown and as we were there, I just remember driving away. It hit me. This is likely the last time I'll ever visit Bagley. They moved now back to my hometown so they could be closer to my parents and, and uh, my extended family and things so uh, that grandpa could have some care to help with grandma and all that. But I remember thinking this was the last time. And this is the last time now Jesus is here in his hometown, in his family, in Nazareth. And, and he is, as we just saw, like he's initially received, but then how is he put out? It actually mirrors the first time that he visited Luke 4. Uh, we don't have to necessarily go there, but Luke 4 records for us the first time that Jesus went back after he had spent basically his 30 years of life uh, there. And then when he was deployed on uh, his earthly ministry and he went in the you know, out in the wilderness, it was just after he was tempted there. Then we're told that he went back to his hometown. He went into the synagogue. He stood up and read Isaiah 61. And there everybody marveled at the graciousness of his words. But what started there, then, they, then it says they became wrathful, and by the end of, of the, the account in Luke 4, you see that they're so mad at him that they take him to the edge of a cliff and are ready to push him off, but somehow in the way that only Jesus could do, it, it says he like slipped through their midst and went away, you know, like to tell, like only Jesus can escape like that, right? he's at the cliff and he's ready to, you know, they're ready, and he escapes, and so now... He returns one last time and he's received in much the same way. One more attempt, but the same reception. And look, they're astonished. They're astonished, verse two says. But their astonishment quickly turns to discrediting him. Wait a minute, where did, who does this guy think he is? Isn't he one from among us? Like, where, this, is, this is the son of Mary, and that's not, like, we read that and we see, like, yeah, of course it is. But in the, the modern context, the Jewish people would not uh, identify one another by, by their mother. It was always by their father. This is a jeer. This is, this is an attempt to be like, oh, yeah, remember the, the guy that was born illegitimately? Remember the guy that, uh, that came, that, who's born out of wedlock? This is the son of Mary. And though we know like his brothers here, you know, it's really, it's, it's a fascinating list. It's just kind of, insig- uh, you know, just some names that we read over. What we'll learn what God and only uh, he can do later down the road, that these brothers, that James who's listed here in Judas or Jude, those are the brothers, they would write books in the Bible. They would become actually early church leaders. And the book of James and the book of Jude that we have at the, at the tail end of our New Testament are these brothers right here. And so now it's meant as a sneer to just discredit, like, who is this guy? He's teaching in such a profound way, but they discredit him, and all the way to the end that it says that they were offended by him, literally scandalized by him. They won't embrace him. So much so that look what Jesus marvels at. You know what it means to marvel at something? Like to be amazed, to be in awe, to be shocked by something? And so much so, after all of, all of Jesus' ministry at the reception that he has received, both great and small and ridiculed and liked, he's now marveling, verse 6 says, at their belief. What does it say there? At their unbelief. See, rejection is real because unbelief is real. Rejection is real because unbelief is real. And some of us in the house here know this type of rejection. We know it all too well, the rejection of family and friends since coming to Christ. We know it all too well because they know the old you, don't they? Our friends, our brothers and sisters, our our, our family members, the people which we grew up with, they were with us when we did those things that we now wish we could just kind of forget, right? Right? They were with us now, or they were with us then, and they see us now, and they immediately go, they're, they're, there's, this guy's a hypocrite. This, this can't be true. We know, who does this guy think he is? He leaves our small little hometown, and now he thinks he's all high and mighty. He, he, he got out of our family, moved to the big city, and now he thinks he's something. Ever experienced any of that? You know that? But now the change in you shines a light on them and it makes our family and friends sometimes the hardest to reach. And it's easy to lash back, isn't it? It's easy to revert back to old patterns. But beloved, instead we must respond with the grace which we ourselves have been shown. We must respond with the grace in the same way that we ourselves have been shown. Rejection is real, unbelief is real, and that's why the gospel is what it is. It's the power of God unto salvation. And so let our response, beloved, let your response in the face of rejection, whether it's people close to you or coworkers or whoever it may be, let your testimony be about the grace of God. Acknowledging past sin, yeah, I did that. I once was that guy. I once was that woman. But not anymore. Not anymore anymore. Not anymore, I met this man named Christ, and now look what he has done in my life. Look at the mercy that he has shown me. And in the midst of that, even when it is rejected, beloved, you are in good company. You are in good company. Jesus and everyone who's followed him since has experienced this kind of rejection. But beloved, let me just stop here because you're like, oh, rejection, we don't like rejection. Rejection does not thwart gospel progress. Rejection does not thwart gospel progress. Uh, rather, it throttles gospel progress. Rejection does not thwart it. It It throttles it. Look at this next section here as we commit to the mission. As we commit to the mission, this next section is is intimately connected. Mark has a point for putting these two uh, accounts right on top of one another. Though Jesus has been rejected, he now is going to multiply his followers out. Pick up in verse 7 here and listen as I read this next section for us. And he called the twelve. And began began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts. But to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. How many of you, just time out right here, how many of you that travel for work, how would you love your boss if they said, uh, like, here's what you can take on your business trip? Go with, your, go with your co-worker, but you can't take anything. you probably quit, wouldn't you? Anyways, let's continue on. Verse 10. And he said to them, "...whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent." And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. This is God's word for God's people. See, Jesus continues his teaching ministry and in the multiplication of ministry here now in the face of rejection. The disciples had traveled with him. They'd been taught by him. Their minds had been sharpened with the truth. Their hands had become callous with ministry experience and he now deploys them into the same teaching and and uh healing ministry that he himself had just engaged in it was it's it's very similar this type of ministry this healing and teaching ministry here is marked by the strength in numbers he's sending them out look two by two for the accountability and the encouragement that we need when we are following christ we're not meant to do this alone are we We're not meant to do this alone for for a myriad of reasons. One, because two are stronger than one. We encourage one another, and when we are left alone, we do all kinds of things that we don't want to do, one of which is just we can become lazy. We can become slothful. Not to mention all the things and sin and whatnot that we can get into, but God here sends them out two by two. Their ministry is marked by the strength in numbers and also by the source of their authority. Look here, he says, he gives them the authority over unclean spirits. Beloved, where is our authority to walk and to do ministry? Where does it come from? In our own self, in our own giftedness, in our own strength, in our own wisdom, in our own craftiness and cleverness? It is a gift that God gives us to steward. And he gives them this authority that they don't come uh, as uh, some trumped up, pompous ministers of the gospel. They come simply marked by the authority that God has given them for this very unique ministry of casting out demons and healing uh, those that are sick. Their ministry is marked as made a joke just a minute ago by the simplicity of supplies. You see this here? They're to take nothing but a staff. They're not to take any bread. They're just fully to rely on the Lord for their provisions as they go. You know, to a Jewish reader, they would, they would see this and, and they would immediately, like their minds would probably go back to Passover. To the readiness that was required when God said to go that they would go and then the celebration of that over and over and over as they would remember the mercy and grace of God to spare his people, to execute judgment on those that were hard towards him. That's what this is a ministry marked by, of a readiness for the gospel, an alertness that comes by being unencumbered by the things of life. They were to be very alert, very ready, kind of like when those of you that have uh, on-call responsibilities in your job, you don't necessarily have to go into the office, you don't have to go to the hospital or whatnot, but you are tied to your phone, you can't go a certain distance away, you can't do certain things because you have to be ready to respond should ministry arise. And that's the heart, that's why uh, Christ sends them in such a way. Their ministry is also marked by the sovereignty of their reception. Do you notice this? Is, did you find maybe some like, uh, interesting, you know, like, wh- why is he saying? Like, when you go somewhere, don't, don't move on. But if they don't receive you, like, shake the dust off your feet. There's some goofiness there, right? Well, really, he's saying, if, if you find a place and you're received, stay there. Because here's something that would mark them as different than just the false teachers of the day. See, if they came and were received, they were to stay there. Because as soon as they began to have some ministry impact, as soon as people were healed, as soon as people were wowed by their teaching, then along would come somebody that say, hey, why don't you come stay at my house? Oh, you're staying over at their house? Well, I have servants. I have multiple rooms. Why don't you come and have some upgrades? And so as to not cast any any sort of a shadow of a doubt on the authenticity and integrity of their ministry, they were just to stay put and not accept any bribes for like more comfortable or more luxurious accommodations while they were in a city. In the same way, if they they were to come and be rejected... They were to say, they, were just to, they weren't to have any sort of responsibility to force their way in. But in a, in a very kind of similar thing that they would do is they would take off their shoe. I'll leave my shoes on for you. No need to demonstrate. And they would wipe off the dirt or the dust that had accumulated there on their sandals as a mark of judgment against them. And this was common, a Jewish person who, had, who was traveling in that day, if they were to go into a Gentile or a pagan land, as they were traveling and then coming back in, and as soon as they kind of like crossed over the border back into the promised land, as a means to saying we're separating ourselves, they would take off their shoes and they would leave that dust back over in the pagan lands now that they were in the holy lands. And so in the same fashion as they were taking now this message of the gospel as they were deployed in the ministry of Christ they were to go where they were received and to leave behind where they were rejected. And look at the nature of their message. It's the same. They are following in the line of Christ. This is what Christ said. We saw this in chapter 1, right? Jesus, he came on the scene and he began proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom which was repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And now look in, in the verse here. What is their message? What in verse 12? are they, uh, they are to go and to proclaim that people should repent. Repent. The first step in coming to Christ. And this is, again, one of those kind of like edgy words, isn't it? It's one of those words that we hear and we kind of like, it makes us bristle up a little bit. But the call to repent is the call to come to Christ. It's a call to leave behind the life of doing it on your own. It's the call to leave behind sinful patterns and turn towards Christ. The uh, the, uh, repentance is literally like I'm going this way and now because Christ has called me, I'm turning my back on my old way of life and I am now headed towards Christ in faith. Beloved, this is the gospel. Have you repented of your sin? If you say, God, I'm tired of doing it my own way. And now in grace and in faith, I'm coming to you. You are the only way. This is the message of the gospel. This is the the life-altering message of Jesus Christ that bids us come. No matter who we are, no matter how old or how young you are, No matter what is in your past, no matter what you are suffering with, no matter if you have had, you know, demons literally or just kind of figuratively, no matter if you've been sick, no matter if you've been struggling, the call to repent is the call to come to Christ and be saved. And beloved, this is a serious message that these disciples are now deployed in. See, rejection doesn't thwart the ministry. It throttles the gospel ministry. And these disciples are now deployed with a commitment that has been strengthened through adversity. Jesus had been training them all along as he called them several chapters ago. And now he's been walking with them in order to multiply them uh, and teaching them all kinds of lessons. One of which was just how to handle rejection, which is a form of adversity. What to do when you're discredited or dismissed, even by those closest to us. And so this multiplication happens through apprenticeship. It happens through this training discipleship where our minds are sharpened and our hands are calloused with the theology and methodology that's required to glorify God and have ministry impact. And so Jesus, just like we do here as a church, we're, he's looking for those that have faith Those that have faith, those that are faithful to the call, those that are available uh, to follow him, those that uh, have the integrity necessary, those that have a teachable and a humble heart. As God sends those men and women into ministry, it happens, that multiplication happens in some steps that look kind of like this. You see this here, it's on the screen. Here these steps for spiritual multiplication. This isn't new to me. I didn't come up with this. I've seen it all along. You can see it on Twitter even. I mean, it's out there everywhere. But you see this here in the scriptures. You can do this as you are multiplying uh, people, as you are teaching your kids the right way. You can use this to train your employees this way. You can help one another this way. And it really begins as we begin to multiply, as we uh, commit to the mission and we are deployed out. It begins with something like this. I do, you watch, and then let's talk about it. Let's have feedback. Let's, uh, Let's evaluate what just happened. And then the next step, as we grow, I'll do it, now you help, come on, get your hands dirty, and then let's talk about it. And as the skills are continued to be built up, then it goes, you do, I'll help, I'll be right here, but you take the lead, and guess what do we do? We talk about it. And the next step, as continue to prove that the faithful can handle the task, have the competency, the character of the things to, to, uh, to, to multiply, to take this message out, then you do it, and I'll just watch, and we'll talk. But does it stop there? No, the spiritual family tree continues to branch out now as you do it and another person gets brought in to watch and then y'all talk. And then we see this multiplication, this advancement of the gospel, this strategy to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Beloved, this methodology is something here that we use within our church. This is how we equip you. This is how we uh, disciple and train on every level from just simple things like, here's how to read your Bible and to pray to uh, how to share the gospel and even how to shepherd the church. This is how we are sent out into our community. See, we gather here, we gather together to then scatter. And as a church, our desire is to mobilize every one of you in here to be uh, on mission for the Great Commission. This is our strategy, not a, oh, just come and do our thing, but how can we equip and train and shepherd and teach you to do the things that God has given to you? To bear responsibility into your own family and with your own passions and with your own interests that God has given you. But we know that we there's a variety of things out there, and so how what's one of the ways that we can equip you by giving you opportunities and pointing you in the right direction? So even as you came in one specific way, as you came in, you maybe you saw that new little easel things uh, out there by the connection table. Did you notice that? And we're just committing to as God puts on our uh, uh, on our plate before us, great ministries that we can be a part of. We just want to put information out there as you uh, commit yourself to uh, be about the Great Commission and uh, within the context of our church and in our community, we've got some great resources right out there to put in your hands and to, uh, as a way to serve our community. Here's, here's just one way um, that has uh, is, is, uh, been presented to us is uh, here at Fryhead Elementary. You know, we've been praying. We've been uh, looking for opportunities to love the teachers and the faculty and staff at, at this church, which we or at this school, and we've gotten some opportunities just last week or the week before, maybe. We got to serve coffee on the last day of school, to all the teachers and, uh, and staff here at High, And they, they loved it. You know, our great coffee out there, we got to share them, just say, great job. Let us, let us give you a little bit of caffeine to make it one last day before, before summer. Uh, but we also have an opportunity to reach the students and the families here through a ministry that already exists in our community called Kids Club. And uh, they, they are an after-school program that uh, uh, reaches out to those uh, students that uh, are struggling in school, that have difficulties in home life, some other uh, things. They have a criteria that they use for those kids that get accepted into it. And they come and uh, receive tutoring and academic help, but also a spiritual discipleship and a hot meal before they head home. And so they are, this fall, opening it up, one up in this school right here. And so that ministry has asked us, knowing that we uh, care about it, that if there are uh, people within our church that would love to be a part of that this next school year, uh, that, uh, that we can get in touch with them. They have training and all those things and, uh, and a variety of levels of just like showing up and, and, and loving the kids to like teaching and all those things. And so what a great opportunity to commit to the mission, the great commission reaching the students and families uh, that come and occupy this school on the you know five other days of the week um, when we're not here and so there's information out there if you want that Um, one of our own Sarah Polson works for them as well and uh, um, and so if you have questions she's actually the best person I'm putting her on the spot she's the best person to ask Um, and uh, are you where are you Sarah are you in here there she is right back there but let's commit to this mission as we mobilize you as we mobilize you to be about the great commission but beloved as you deploy with Christ. Don't forget what lies ahead. Don't forget what lies ahead. The same rejection that Christ faced may be ahead for us, or it may even require us to lay down our life. To lay down our life. See, the the first section of Mark six here is another one of those sandwich structures. You may be wondering, like, what's it here? He's like rejected, then he sends them out, and now uh, I'm going to read it for us in a second. But now we have this section here on on on. King Herod and beheading John the Baptist, like are we just bouncing around? No, no, remember Mark is making a spiritual point here that when we are deployed with Jesus, expect to be discredited, dismissed, or even done in. And so let's read this next section, and it it reads a little bit funny because I'm I'm just gonna kind of lay it out and I'll read it here for you, But, but King Herod hears about Jesus, and, and he has some wrong thoughts like, well, who is this guy and who are these followers of his? And that then causes him to recollect backwards of what he did because he thinks maybe this is John the Baptist who's come back to life. And so now we get this uh, past event recorded for us here to add some context. And so join me in ver- chapter six, verse 14, as I read it here for us. It says this, King Herod heard of it. Heard of what? Heard of Jesus and heard of the disciples being deployed. They heard, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, who I am beheaded, has been raised. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This is God's word for God's people. Isn't this an interesting account here? It's an interesting account to remind us of the reality of what we need to expect, that when we are deployed in mission, here even John the Baptist A forerunner of Christ, the last of the Old Testament prophets, the first Christian martyr, faced an untimely death for preaching the gospel, for being about the ministry of God. Here is King Herod. He's uh, the son of Herod the Great. He's, uh, he was an evil man. He, he was uh, a descendant, these, these Herods were descendants of uh, Esau, of Do You remember he, uh, Jacob and Esau in the, uh, in the Old Testament, the Israelites, the Jewish people are descendants of Jacob and his uh, twin brother Esau, they were enemies. And their descendants have been really ever since then. And so this Herod, Herod Agrippa here is one of them. He was a Roman pawn and an enemy of the Jews, and he played both pretty well. And you see his sin here that he had committed. He, he had taken his half-brother Philip's wife as his own wife. But the crazy part is that Herodias was not only his half-brother's wife, it was also his other half-brother's daughter. And so now Herodias is his wife, but also his sister-in-law and also his niece. It's so like a soap opera, Yes a little confusing. And so of right, John tells him and says, you can't do that. That's off limits. This, is, this is, does not honor God. And so of course, he's like the most like powerful person. He's the local regional ruler of that area. And so he gets mad. But it's interesting here, like, like Herod doesn't put him to death. Herodias has a grudge. Herodias, the wife, wants to put him to death. But Herod is perplexed. He's, he's kind of, he hears him gladly, so much so that there's like a little bit of like an inkling, like, okay, maybe there's some mercy, some grace among this guy. And so he just, he puts him into prison. We find out, if you read the works of Josephus, you can find out more about it. He, he tells us, you know, the place where he's imprisoned and all of that. But in the midst of this, he's in prison. And now we don't even have to go into all the details of it. There's this debauched birthday party, right, of... Disgusting and perverse, and you know, in his state, he makes a vow to a teenage girl. Say, give, ask for whatever you wish, and I'll give it to you. Like, how how <laughs> foolish do you have to be to say something like that to a teenage girl, right? And so they see their opportunity, and in the providence of God, John is beheaded. He is beheaded. This is an event that we're told he was arrested way back, back in chapter one, verse 14, as Jesus is being deployed on his ministry. uh, Mark just kind of slides in there, and this is when John was arrested. And so at some point in here, now these events happen. And so Mark's point is, is by including it right here for us, is that to sober us as we get amped up, as we commit to Christ, that we uh, weigh the potential cost of following him that we must, if, if, even if we are discredited, even if we are, are dismissed, that we could eventually be done in. are we willing to lay it all on the line? Are we willing to lay it all on the line? Are we, as followers of Christ, the people of redemption, are we willing to go the distance, to be the few who do the much for the blessing of the many? And when we are, the, the extra clothes, the bigger houses, the invitations to wild parties, they don't matter. We live in a world where prestige and popularity are, are there like gods, so much so that in order to obtain them, we, we will lay aside our convictions, we will, we will sear our consciences in order to climb the ladder and to gain the prosperity and prestige that we desire. See, beloved, sin is powerful. Unbelief is blindingly strong. But we've been given something far greater and more valuable in Christ. And we've been called to follow him who is more powerful than any earthly force. And so the cruelty of unbelief must be matched by the commitment of belief. Belief. The cruelty of the opposition must be matched by the commitment of the redeemed. And that's us, y'all. That's us who've been called to Christ. And though it may seem counterintuitive, like to walk into to rejection, none of us like that, right? Like who likes walking up to somebody and just like totally like having your back turned on? Them? Who likes being ridiculed? Who, who, who is like has some sort of guilty, you know, desire to go be murdered none of us like this and but yet it's the call that we must embrace and though it seems as i said counterintuitive rejection or even death are often the motivation for ministry and multiplication who is jesus he's the rejected one isaiah 53 long ago told us that this would be the path for christ Long before he uh, stepped foot on this earth, the prophet Isaiah told us what would be Jesus' lot. Look at this, speaking of Jesus, it says he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. This was the lot of Christ. He would come and be the rejected one. And that categorical rejection that we've seen in the book of Mark would lead to cataclysmic redemption. His rejection would lead to redemption. It was all part of the plan for our salvation that he would bear the burden. that he would pay the penalty, that his rejection would lead to our salvation. And now we are commissioned to go and tell and tell and tell and tell it to all who will listen. Who is Christ? The rejected one. Who are we? His followers, laying it all down so that many will hear the life-changing message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You ready to go? Let's go. Will you pray with me?